glad I'm glad that we're back and doing this. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. I'm glad to be back too. Feels right. good to be back in the saddle. Right. Overdue. Long overdue. Um Definitely. so you know, the let's just jump right into it and um, you know, and and talk about a number of things that we've been talking about off air. For, uh, for starters, um, you've written a couple of articles on Operation Push, mm-hmm. um, and I would love for you to talk a little bit more about Operation Push. Sure. So um, Operation Push is a nonviolent prison labor and strike and boycott that is taking place uh, starting on January 15th, which was MLK Junior Day, um, in prisons across Florida. Um, and so basically, What has happened is that in the wake of the September 9th prison labor strikes and um, in the aftermath of the Millions for Prisoners march, um, which also saw some actions that were uh, clamped down pretty brutally in Florida, where they put like tens of thousands of people on lockdown um, on the day of the Millions for Prisoners march in D.C. last year, um, they have sort of, you know, studied uh, the, these incarcerated people have taken a look at, um, you know, these actions that the movement has engaged in in recent years, and they've sort of, you know, sat there and figured out what they're going to do next and how they're going to do things differently and handle the levels of brutality and retaliation that come from these prison officials. And so they decided that this time they would try the nonviolent approach um, and they would focus on withholding their labor and withholding. Um, their uh, sort of economic power from the commissary, um, from the phone services that, you know, reap huge profits off of them and their, uh, you know, want and need to communicate with their families. Um, And the goal of this action, there are three, um, there are three like primary demands. The first demand is uh, fair monetary compensation for labor. Um, prisoners in Florida are forced to work, they're assigned work. And uh, if they do not work, if they, I've been told by the Florida Department of Corrections directly that if prisoners refuse their work assignments, they're in violation of department policy and can be punished for that. Um, You know, disciplinary reports, solitary confinement, what have you. Um, And just in terms of this demand in particular, Prisoner, uh, incarcerated people were very um, specific about the fact that they want monetary compensation. They don't want to be paid for their labor uh, in terms of gain time or you know days off their sentences. They want money, um, mm-hmm. and one of the main reasons for that is because they want um, to be able to save up for when they're released, so they're not just you know sort of dumped back out on the street with forty dollars and a bus ticket and expected to uh, you know pull life together from that and not uh, be thrown back in prison for violating their parole or, or for what have you. So that's the first demand. Um, The second demand is uh, an end to price gouging against prisoners and their families in the canteens and again, in the phones and things like that. But specifically um, they've, they've spoken about in the commissary where, um, where, you know, prices for food are uh, and other items, hygiene items, um, you know, basically all of the things that prisoners need to support themselves on the inside. Uh, Which you know, be, pretty much ahead. the same stuff that people need on the outside. Totally. Soap, totally. shampoo, razors, um, you know, food, supplementary food, 
definitely. You know, um, pretty much anything. You know, so I, I just wanted to to clarify that. But sorry, absolutely. To, no, no. And I think that's a, you you know, you brought up the food, the supplementary food. I think that's a big part of it. Um, because, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, while, while they used to say, I guess, uh, that incarcerated people get three hots in a cot. Well, it's like, maybe you get a cot, if not like a slab of concrete to sleep on, but the meals aren't even enough to keep, you know, the average person fed or, uh, you know, in, in the case of these folks who a lot of them are having to work in extreme temperatures on farms and, and these sort of like uh, manual labor conditions, you know, cleaning up after hurricanes and these dangerous positions um, and they don't even have enough food to eat. You know, they kind of have to rely on uh, the canteen with these meager wages, either, either no money at all, or they're getting paid like 20 cents, 50 cents an hour for their work. And they're supposed to be able to buy food, uh, buy, hygiene products like you said um buy and, clothing know, i mean clothing, yeah. in a lot of, but in a lot of cases if you want to buy you know t-shirts underwear socks yep uh, you know uh sneakers you know a jacket to you know for the colder months mm-hmm. uh, thermals all of those things are not provided those are things that you know either the incarcerated person has to buy themselves or um their family pays for and it's important to note, too, on that subject, that they can only buy these things from a very select group of vendors. And the same goes oh, yeah. for families who want to buy things for them. Um, and so it's kind of like this forced oligopoly that mm-hmm. they're dealing with. Uh, and again, the prices are inflated. And Kevin Rashid Johnson, who's a political prisoner who, who I'm sure we'll get to uh, in this conversation, who, who's been punished pretty severely for writing an article about Operation Push, he noted that, um, you know, he's been incarcerated in, in four states, including Florida, and the prices in the commissary um, in Florida compared to other states is just, it's just absurd, um, yeah. you know, pointing to just, uh, you know, the price of a can of soup in Texas prisons versus in Florida, you know, it's several dollars more, which again is a lot of money if you're making nothing or 20 cents an hour. Um, yeah. So um, the third uh, demand of Operation Push is for parole incentives for people who have life sentences or for people with parole dates in the distant future, which um, is referred to as Buck Rogers time. Mm. Um, And so basically, uh, you know, I take that um, from what I've I've heard uh, from incarcerated people and from the organizers, um, you know, basically incarcerated people want something to work towards. They want, you know, the ability to rehabil- to have rehabilitation, to have education, uh, and the prospect of getting out and, and like, you know, doing better for themselves or getting back on their feet. Um, and, uh, you know, there is no parole uh, incentives for people with life sentences um, in Florida. So, so, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty straightforward, pretty straightforward demand in my point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those are like the three sort of major demands of operation. Demands. And uh, some pretty important ones. And as you uh, pointed out, you know, this certainly intersects with previous events, uh, you know, events around September 9th, um, as well as the millions for prisoners. I have another, you know, thought along those same lines, uh, mm-hmm. but I want to hold off on that before. Yeah, for now, and talk a little bit about 
not just your reporting uh, on this subject, because you've been writing a lot about this um, in the you know last few days. Uh, you've written a couple of articles that you published on Shadowproof, but you've been in communication with folks on the inside as well. And in my reading of things outside of what you've written, uh, mm-hmm. Brian, it's clear that there's, uh, you know, this denial, um, flat out denial and gaslighting that's happening um, regarding, you know, Operation Push, um, its existence and what the Florida Department of Correction is doing about it. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, you know, this is, again, something that we saw happen in the aftermath uh, of the prison rebellions that took place in September 2016. You know, basically, we have a situation where the Department of Corrections is uh, engaging in retaliation, throwing people in solitary confinement, um, you know, hitting them with disciplinary reports and charges. Um, And we're getting reports of that through incarcerated people and their families and advocates for them on the outside. And then at the same time, the department is saying, well, there are no work stoppages, there is no resistance, and our operations uh, are uninterrupted. And we've heard these reports, uh, both of retaliation and resistance, in at least 16 state prisons across Florida. Mm. Um, So, um, you know, it's basically, I think... Um, there's a couple things to say here. One is that, you know, I think the Department of Corrections has recognized how essential outside support is, uh, both for, uh, you know, the momentum and the morale of these uh, of these strikes. You know, it's important to incarcerated people to know that there's people on the outside who have their back and who are watching and um, who will support them when they take these enormous enormous risks. And so. The Department of Corrections has basically, um, you know, starting at least, if not a couple weeks, but of a few days before the strike was scheduled to begin, um, they started cutting lines of communication, you know, throwing people, suspected organizers in solitary confinement. Um, in some cases, we've heard of them deactivating the prison phone lines so that people couldn't make phone calls out. And what that had the effect of was that organizers, um, you know, who had these established lines of communication with people and were waiting to spread the word, you know, it just went radio silence pretty much, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, conducting massive cell sweeps, um, disrupting sort of personalized lines of communication that incarcerated people had set up. Um, And so for the most part, people are reduced to mail communication, communicating through the post. um, And then in situations where Incarcerated people have been put on, uh, you know, labeled security threat groups, uh, members of security threat groups is basically like a gang designation, uh, or they're on closed management status, uh, which is basically just a complete restriction on their communication, and they have to communicate with their lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just a complete uh, slowdown. And that allows them to then put out these press releases as they have been saying that nothing's going on, like, we don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, it's a deliberate attempt to sort of gaslight the movement uh, and break the spirit of people on the inside um, because, you know, the idea, I suppose, is that if they hear that there is no strike happening, well, if they were going to participate, uh, you know, maybe they're not going to now because they're not going to go out on a limb by, their, by themselves given the risk. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then um, the other uh, the other thing that I was going to say um, before I lost my train of thought, the other thing I was going to say was that um, it's important to remember that the way that this differs from um, other recent acts of organized resistance in prisons makes it on its own hard to sort of uh, visualize the momentum and if, if it's happening and what's going on. Um, so, you know, in other, uh, you know, in September 9th, we saw um, a lot of uprisings and resistance where there were, um, you know, sort of uh, these riot squads being brought in and these extremely violent and brutal lockdowns and uh, acts of suppression that were taking place across the country. Um, uh, over that labor strike, because this has been uh, sort of an intentionally nonviolent and economic protest as it was organized, it's just sort of harder to see. Um, and and I think some of the IWOC organizers have pointed out that, you know, in some ways, we're really not going to know the scale or the impact of this until the next uh, budget comes out, until we can see the economic impact of uh, incarcerated people withholding their labor and withholding their money. Um, and so that's the other thing that I wanted to say was basically that, um, you know, it, the, the Florida prison system is not only gaslighting this, but it's also this challenge of, uh, well, if we don't have this communication with people on the outside and there's not this visible, uh, you know, constant, um, you know, for lack of a better term, spectacle for people to look at, um, then it's kind of hard to to show, you know, the progress. But they do say that it's still ongoing. Um, there's, you know, they're just starting to regain communication with people in some uh, in some cases, um, and they are planning more. And um, just the final thing I, I will say is that uh, incarcerated people who um, who led and organized this, just like they did for September 16th. Um, they were very intentional that um, this wasn't going to just be a one-day action. It was going to be at least a month action. But most importantly, it was going to be uh, the start of a whole year of action, at least. It was going to be the kickoff to the next phase uh, of the movement. So, And I already know that like other uh, in groups of incarcerated people um, in this abolition movement uh, are already, start of ta uh, already talking and looking ahead to... Um, what other actions there will be this year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one of the things that struck me as I was reading um, uh, one of your articles, and I'll give you the, the title of it now because I have it up on, on my laptop here. Um, the uh, movement against prisoner uh, slavery ramps up with Operation Push in Florida. And you put this out on uh, January 11th here. Um, and you said prisoners are sent to labor without pay on on the outside as well, including for government agencies and nonprofit organizations. They also work in jobs that are difficult and dangerous. Increasingly, prisoners are tapped as a free workforce for cleaning up natural disasters. In Florida, in Florida, they worked without pay to clean up Hurricane Irma. These workers are not covered by the same labor protections as those on the outside. And some health and safety groups argue this work can be done more, um, can be more deadly than the storms themselves. Mm -hmm. Prisoners in the Florida system who wrote a letter expressing solidarity with the action pointed out how immigrant labor is exploited under this arrangement. Quote, there are so many Haitians, Jamaican and Latinos in the FLDOC serving sentences that exceed life expectancy and or 
and slash or life sentences who are not being deported. They use all immigrants for free labor and then deport them, end quote. And, you know, in a lot of ways, this is something that I don't think we discuss enough. Um, mm -hmm. The use of immigrant labor in relation to the broader labor movement within, you know, prisons. And I'd like to hear more of what you've learned about, you know, um, about this through your writing, through your investigation. Yeah, um, you know, specifically on the term, uh, uh, on the uh, subject of immigrant labor in prisons, um, you know, immigrant detention centers, uh, even before the September 9th action, immigrant detention centers have been uh, a site of rebellion, um, you know, in some ways that I uh, came across more frequently than I did uh, in other um, sort of non-immigrant detention, I guess, um, settings, a lot of hunger strikes, um, a lot of other forms of resistance. Um, and a lot of it is again, you know, around the forced labor that takes place inside a lot of these facilities, you know, in this situation here, you know, these are not, um, immigrant detention centers per se that these Haitian prisoners are talking about. I don't think we're talking about, um, the Florida system. So you have, you know, immigrants who are, uh, mm -hmm. not being detained for immigration, offenses, but are immigrants nonetheless. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, their labor is being exploited. But, you know, in the immigrant detention centers, which are uh, entirely for-profit um, detention centers, with the exception of prison space that is being leased out to ICE and DHS in, you know, jails and prisons and the Florida system, um, you have like Geo Group and Core Civic, which used to be CCA, who have their own sort of labor camps and programs. Um, and again, you know, it's a lot of the same, you know, in a lot of ways, it, there are a lot of similarities. It's a lot of um, sort of this essential labor that is used to keep the facility running. So like laundry, janitorial work, working in the mess hall, um, things like that. Um, and then you also have like farm labor and industrial labor. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing I will say is that, uh, you know, just as it is with, you know, sort of jailhouse labor, um, with immigrant detention, like th this is pre-trial detention that mm -hmm. you that you have labor in, uh, you know, not that it makes it any better to exploit people for having uh, a conviction, but I'm just saying that like, you know, these are people who are awaiting trial, uh, who are being used as sources of free labor uh, mm -hmm. or, or like very, very low paid labor. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of connecting to the first part of that passage that you um, that you read about uh, natural disasters, which is something um, that I would love to talk about too. Um, you know, the, this is labor that you know doesn't have the same workplace uh, protections that we see on the outside. You know, there's no workers' comp if you get yeah. hurt on the job. You know, it's not the same as if you work at like a construction job on the outside. Um, there are no protections uh, in that sense. There's no protections in terms of just like, you know, the kinds of uh, just general equipment that you'd want to be wearing when mm -hmm. handling this stuff. I mean, on the subject of these natural disasters, uh, you know, the people that are cleaning up after hurricanes, you know, you have all kinds of chemicals and hazardous debris uh, that people are wading through, high floodwaters, sewage, uh, you know, all of that. and. Um, you know, for the most part, uh, 
you know, these prisons don't really care if you get injured on the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in a lot of cases, they can make you keep working even if you're still injured, you know, if, you, if, if you're mm-hmm. sick. Uh, and then on top of it all, obviously, the medical care is abysmal. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I think, you know, that's about what I would say. Yeah. Uh, there. I think, uh, I think we could also make the case that, you know, while we're referring to these as uh, quote unquote natural disasters, that these aren't really natural. Um, right. That are human made. Yes. you know, disasters. And this, again, you know, intersects with something else that you uh, reference in your article um, regarding um, environmental justice um, or injustice in, in this case and uh, and carcerality. And I think that that's another important point um, that, you know, we can we can touch on today or we can come back to this. I think, um, you know, it, it that also merits its own um, you know, uh, discussion, um, you know, if you, uh, if you want to talk about that, you know, I think it would be, uh, great to to talk about that. I mean, I think, you know, we should definitely, uh, have some conversations like separate episodes about this because this is actually like a a sort of intersection, uh, in prisons Mm -hmm. that I don't think gets nearly enough attention, Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some people, you know, especially in Florida with a group like Fight Toxic Prisons, which is one of the outside groups that are leading this charge. Um, you know, this is there's a lot of work being done on the ground around these issues that just doesn't get attention. Um, and so basically, just to quickly, you know, sort of touch on this, um, there, there are two things that I would want to talk about. The first is, again, to, to sort of, I guess, man-made climate change disasters um, you know, from the wildfires in uh, California uh, to the, um, you know, the hurricanes in Florida, mm-hmm. you have uh, incarcerated people being tapped for their labor to go clean this up for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, it's much cheaper for the state uh, mm-hmm. than to have to pay like real work crews and like provide for, uh, you know, their their health. Uh, you know, and, and ensure them. Um, and, uh, you know, they don't, I mean, you know, I think that's pretty much the main, the major body bottom line, you know, if there's, if there's no will to sort of tackle uh, the energy and pollution crisis that we have, um, and then there's no money left in state budgets uh, to adequately pay people to clean it up, then they, you know, just turn to the most easily exploitable labor that they can get their hands on, mm-hmm. which are incarcerated people to go and be on the front lines of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, that has all kinds of health and financial ramifications for communities down the line, as people get let out of prisons eventually, and then go home to their communities where they, you know, will inevitably suffer health effects from, you know, having done this work mm-hmm. uh, so unprotected. Um, and then there's this other aspect of it that uh, comes up in my article that is about sort of the exposure to environmental conditions that um, incarcerated people are subject to because of climate change. So in Florida, in particular, you have, you know, high temperatures, you have contaminated water, you have rising sea levels with a lot of these jails and prisons being built, you know, close to the shoreline. Um, And, you know, then when like these big tropical storms or hurricanes hit, uh, you know, these, (laughs) these incarcerated people are 
unbelievably, you know, in a lot of cases, not evacuated, but just sort of expected to bunker down and flooded prisons, you know, mold, just, you know, phosphate mines, because again, like, you know, these prisons, for the most part, are built in sort of far off areas where they're, you know, removed from cities and, and, and towns and things like that. And mm-hmm. so they're also in areas where there are mining and other sort of industrial operations going on that pollute the area around them and can contaminate their water. And the group in Florida, uh, Fight Toxic Prisons, has sort of recognized how much of an issue this is for Florida prisoners and through literature and through their uh, relationships with people on the inside have sort of been broaching this subject and getting um, prisoners to agitate uh, for their environmental justice, um, you know, including even writing letters to oppose um, the construction of this phosphate mine across sort of what they call the prison belt uh, in Northern Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think that's an area that, you know, I would really love to, you know, have some of those folks on and talk about that more in the future because it doesn't get nearly enough, um, attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, again, one last thing I'll say is a lot of these facilities are ancient. Uh, and even if they're really not that old, um, you know, they're not, uh, kept up very well, or they don't, a lot of them don't have air conditioning or air conditioning that works or is clean. Um, and so, you know, th- that sort of aging and, and obsolete architecture is a big part of it, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you've, you've mentioned a number of different organizations, um, IWOC yeah. and uh, FTP being just two of them, um, as well as Millions for Prisoners. Um, can you talk about the role of outside organizations in supporting, um, you know, and advocating, uh, agitating, if you will, uh, for uh, Operation Push and, you know, what they've done and, you know, what what people can do if they're interested in getting involved in um, in this effort? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, one of the primary uh, reasons or or goals of having a large, visible, and active show of support on the outside is to sort of get the backs of the people who are, again, putting themselves at such enormous risk on the inside. Um, you know, if, uh, if prison administrations know that people are watching and they're flooding phone lines, as they did recently for um, Kevin Rashid Johnson, um, who I'll just quickly, because uh, I know his name has come up a couple of times just to mm-hmm. explain, um, Kevin uh, Rashid Johnson is a political prisoner. He's an activist and intellectual. Um, he's been incarcerated in a few states for the last few years, but is now in Florida. Um, he's got you know quite a bit of a following on the outside, and um, he wrote an article about Operation Push. You know, going through the demands and and sort of the strategy, and also included some of his own experiences and observations from the inside. Um, and and sort of weaving those into his reporting. Um, And I should mention in his article, which you can read uh, on the website of IWOC um, and at Fight Toxic Prisons on their website, there's no call to action in it, but he was charged with inciting a riot before the protest began. And he was basically thrown into a solitary cell uh, with the window open and a broken toilet. And it's pretty cold. Uh, I mean, I know it's Florida, but, um, you know, at night, uh, the temperatures can drop pretty pretty low, um, and for a while his attorneys were worried that basically they were going to kill him, um, just like let him freeze to death mm-hmm. in his cell. Um, and so, 
what they did was they had people on the outside call into the warden and demand that he be moved to a to another cell. And um, for about a day and a half, people flooded that phone line. Um, you know, they were uh, making phone calls, leaving messages, writing emails um, on Twitter. They were passing around, oh, you know, this phone number is not working anymore, but I got through to somebody here. So try calling this number, you know, sharing their little scripts for what they were saying. And eventually, according to Rashid's lawyers, he's been moved uh, to a what they called a climate controlled cell. Uh, and is no longer uh, being tortured, as Rashid said he was being. Um, and so I, I wanted to bring that up because it's an illustration of the role of, of people on the outside. Basically, um, you know, the people on the inside are completely dehumanized and stripped of their rights. And so in some senses, um, it's the place of, uh, or it's the duty of the people who want to show their support on the outside to sort of step in uh, and exert their influence as members of the public over the prison administration and get them to stop their retaliation or at least just let them know that people are watching. Um, and so calling campaigns are a big part of it. Um, letter writing and just sort of pen palling, again, is just always sort of this um, sort of foundational important thing uh, in, in keeping relationships with people and keeping communication um, on the outside. I know that. Um, in a lot of ways, the organizers are basically asking people, like, what skills do you have? What things can you bring to the table uh, that we can use um, to the benefit of the prisoners? So, for example, um, I know that they were looking for paralegals and people who have some legal experience to help them sort of chart out what the contours of, like, what the legal rights of prisoners were as they resist. So that, you know, there was some sort of, like, if something happened they could have some kind of a legal response or anticipate in some way legally, like what they could do to protect prisoners and what, you know, rights they have that are enforceable. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, um, some of those groups would be uh, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, IWOC, um, their Gainesville chapter has been very active on this. Um, Fight Toxic Prisons is another one. Um, jailhouse Lawyers Speak, of course, uh, always important in this movement. Um, and the Millions for uh, Prisoners, Human Rights, I Am We organization, um, obviously. Um, but I would say, you know, just to sort of have that uh, that complementary support on the outside. Uh, and, you know, to be clear, it's made clear time and time again from organizers on the outside. People on the inside are taking the lead. Um, you know, if if they decide that the risk is too great and they don't want to continue this boycott, then it ends. It's not like people on the outside have any say as to whether that keeps going. Mm -hmm. um, basically, people on the outside are, uh, are you know, to work in service and in protection of the people on the inside and to, and to advance their message um, and their demands and their conditions uh, to the rest of the public and the media. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In a post-Vaughn era, mm -hmm. um, it seems to me at least, or, you know, seems obvious to me that the desire on the part of DOCs across the country is to claim that there's no action happening, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Whatever that action might be, right? And to very quickly and early on 
identified people and labeled them as, you know, the troublemakers, the organizers, the agitators, what have you, in order to avoid having to, in order to avoid what happened in, in Delaware. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. because they, you know, they paid out a settlement of close to $8 million in Delaware. Mm. Um, they blamed the governor for not making the call to enter the prison uh, sooner, mm-hmm. right? They waited 18 hours. So it strikes me, and it could just be, you know, my own thinking around this, but by quelling these efforts early on and by claiming that there is nothing actually happening, even if something is happening inside, which makes it really difficult. I mean, because none of us can prove it, right? right. So we have a situation where, you know, prisoners are not to be believed, right? So we only mm-hmm. believe the official line. So that arrangement right there you know, is it makes it difficult for you to actually prove anything because if it's coming from a prisoner, it's already assumed to be not true. Right. 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 Um, So, I mean, I don't know. um, I don't know if I have so much of a question, but just as a, you know, a line of thought here and wondering, you know, if that's come up for you at all um, in your thinking, because, you know, basically. Absolutely. That's how you and I, you know, connected was around, um, you know, what happened at Vaughn. And yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I I totally hear that. It is something I think about a lot. Uh, I think, you know, in this situation, there's a couple of things to think about. Um, we're dealing with an institution that has sort of unfettered ability to remain in obscurity and to exercise, you know, so whatever control it really wants to exert over the movement and communication of people um, who are on the inside. And with that, and because, you know, journalists are not invited into prisons to sort of like fact check what uh, the administrations are saying, at the end of the, of the day, it is largely, you know, it's hearsay that that journalists are operating on, even if they think that they're going uh, with the official line and that's the truth. Um, and nowhere, uh, I mean, Florida is sort of like, I mean, you know, it's, it's in a lot of ways not uh, anything special because this happens all over the country. But in recent memory, um, you know, with the murder of Darren Rainey by corrections officers, Darren yeah. Rainey was... Uh, a mentally ill prisoner who was literally locked in a shower by corrections officers as a punishment. Mm-hmm. He was locked in a shower that had been rigged to reach temperatures that were 40 degrees higher than uh, what the state allowed showers to reach to so 160 degrees. And they literally burned him to death. And then they lied about it and they tried yeah. to cover it up. And eventually the state settled with Rainey's family. No charges were ever filed against corrections officers. The prisoner who blew the whistle uh, on the whole thing had to be moved to a whole nother state because they, you know, feared for his life. Yeah. Um, uh, So that situation right there, you know, we're talking about a situation where uh, you, you know, whether you are touting the line of the state or you're believing what the prisoners are saying, you know, you're, you're sort of depending on what people are saying. There's no 
one truth because we've allowed to, I guess what I'm saying, because we've allowed this situation where we have these black holes in our society. And, you know, it gives this advantage to the prison because they can basically uh, operate in secret and do all these awful things and then turn around and say, well, nothing's happening. And who are you going to believe, you know? Um, And, you know, I think about that all the time in my reporting. And the best that I think that we can do is is to just sort of, you know, we we get the state's perspective, I guess is what I'm going to say. Oh, absolutely. Uh, We get the state's perspective enough. It's readily available. You don't really have to work that hard to know what Florida thinks about Operation Push or any, you know, sort of prisoner human rights issue. However, uh, you're never, almost never going to see the perspectives of a family member of the incarcerated, of Mm -hmm. a person who's on the inside. You know, those are just left out of the articles almost completely. Uh, You know, like a couple weeks ago, I can't remember where it was. I tweeted about it. But there was an article about an uprising that happened in a jail somewhere. And the article was maybe like a thousand words long. Uh, And it was all about how prisoners had set up booby traps and had made these makeshift weapons. And there was this dramatic battle between the inmates and the corrections officers. And there was like maybe one super vague sentence that mentioned like they were rebelling against like their abysmal living conditions uh, and were tired of being ignored by prison administrations and having their grievances ignored. But that was like, if they could have left, I, like I imagine that the the journalist wrote the article as this like you know dramatic uh, you know battle story, and the editor was like, "Well, make should we like add a line in here about why this happened?" And like, okay, like we'll just reference it like as an aside, but it's it's not important. Yeah, and that is how these things are reported. It's like it's like going to like an action movie or something like that. But it's it's uh, I mean that's it's awful. Uh, to like how how can you believe that people would put themselves in this amount of danger uh, for no reason or because they're making it up and that there's so many people who are echoing this and, and signing on to this and there's an organized movement behind it to think that that would be uh, all based on you know fraud and deception on behalf of people who are incarcerated is absurd. Um, And so for me, it's like, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe like this giant crowd of people who are, uh, you know, enduring this risk to make this message and to say this is what's happening to them? And who know and who internalize when you talk to them, who know that they are not going to be believed and that people think they're full of shit. They can Mm -hmm. sense that because they get that from society and from the people who hold them captive every day, who Mm -hmm. tell them that you know, what they have to say and what they think, even down to like having a medical problem and being told that you're full of shit and you can't go to sit call today, you know, you know, malingering, that whole concept of malingering. You know, I, I just think it's it's ridiculous to think that to represent the perspectives of prisoners uh, who are taking this action is to just go on hearsay and then to, to you know, to hear that this stuff is happening and then just see the Department of Corrections being like, oh, there's nothing going on here. Uh, and, to, and to like just give another example of like sort of the information warfare that goes on here. I contacted the Department of Corrections when Rashid, uh, when we found out that Rashid was being held in these conditions. And I asked them, you know, I said, I, I read the disciplinary report. 
I read Rashid's article. I want you to point out for me what passages are incitements to a riot here. Uh, you know, you're charging him with an incitement to riot, ostensibly, uh, or at least we would like to think he's going to have some kind of a hearing, even if it's like a perfunctory kangaroo court hearing. And they're going to have to, you know, I would presume somebody would be in a position to argue how this was an incitement to riot. And the response I got from the Department of Corrections was literally, yes, Rashid has been charged with inciting a riot. Let me know if you want a copy of the disciplinary report, because I will file a records request for you. And I was like, no, I, I read them. I, like, you, I, know, I know it took you two hours to respond to me, so I know you read my message, and I know you know what I'm saying, but you're playing a game with me, you know? Um, and that's just a very small example of the kind of, like, messing around, just the bullshit the runaround that you get from officials when you're just trying to, you know, let's just like, if they had like a legitimate reason, or if, even if they had an illegitimate reason, but one that they perceived as legitimate, they could have just said that. And like, I could have put it in my article, Department of Corrections thinks this sentence here was an incitement to riot. You know, you and me and everybody else would probably disagree, but they're not even willing, they're not even honest enough to do that. You know, they're not even willing enough to do that. and so. You know, just to just to come back to this, like, if we're talking about who do we believe, you know, my answer is, well, who controls the information that you're getting? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, your point about, you know, silencing people on the inside or, you know, just not even rendering them invisible completely, mm -hmm. you know. Um, as a way to perpetuate, you know, this illusion that justice is being carried out in mm -hmm. some way. And, and the thing that I, you know, kept thinking about when you mentioned this um, just a few minutes ago was, you know, something that Mariam Kaba um, says, um, or has said, said, you know, prison as an institution is in our head and hearts. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that so, you know, captures so well Absolutely. Um, what we're trying to say here in terms of, well, this is why people automatically believe, you know, what officials say, as opposed to an incarcerated person um, or an incarcerated person's family. I mean, it's it's while incarcerated people's families and loved ones have become much more visible and vocal over the last, you know, few years, that's not something that, you know, many family members or a role that many family members have really wanted to take on. I mean, mm -hmm. because there's still a lot of, you know, stigma attached to having someone, mm -hmm. you know, in prison. And there are a lot of consequences that come with being, you know, a vocal, outspoken advocate of, you know, for prison abolition um, and for you know, um, movements, you know, of various sorts that I'm not going to say force you, but it's a kind of you, it, and I'm 
speaking in generalities here, sure. obviously, obviously not for myself because that that ship has sailed for me. As you know, anybody who's been listening to the podcast <laughs> since day one, you know, already knows. Um, well, here we are. I mean, we have a podcast on this issue. On this issue. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's that's not something that loved ones necessarily want to engage in because you know it's like it has consequences in terms of your job and you know uh things like that so you know which does impact what is happening with your loved one on the inside Mm -hmm. um and then there's all the other variables and things like that but i don't want to get into um those things you know in in the context of this discussion i think that you know um folks need to read both of your articles um, if they haven't done so already. And we can link to them when we link to the to this episode of the podcast. The first one or the second one that you published, Florida officials deny Operation Push is ongoing, even as they retaliate against prisoners. I mean, I, I love the headline right there the, the <laughs> of the article. Because, I mean, it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, they're the, the if they're denying people, you know, phone calls, they're, you know, um, punishing people, they're doing and taking all of these actions, you know, for something that doesn't exist. I mean, it's, it's, it's so ridiculous. And to be clear, again, like on the subject of like the control of information, like it's not even a system where I could go to them and be like, okay, I've heard that, uh, you know, a bunch of people just got thrown in solitary. Can you give me like a, a list of people who've been put in solitary recently and tell me why? Like, you know, you can't even, like, I just want to underscore that that's not something that you can do. Like, they can just not tell you that information. Yeah. You know, whereas like a lot of, you know, even if you're like a family member and, you know, you have, you know, this personal connection on the inside, this information is like not available. So it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's set up and and this is just the thing that I always am thinking about. It's just so like set up to be uh, obscure that reporting on this is just, uh, it's not easy. And I, and I would encourage people really, if they want to know what's going on to seek out the voices of the people who are on the inside. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you know, and I know from experience um, that, you that they have a monopoly on information and they have the power to basically tell you or not tell you whatever it is that they want that they want to so you know if for some reason you want to you know you call and you want to know well why was my loved one moved to a different unit they don't have to tell you you know, they, they won't, and they won't tell you till like much later on because they'll well, be held I mean, communicado. You know, you're, you're more likely to hear it through, you know, your loved one themselves or yeah. through someone else who, you know, they got a message through, yeah. um, you know, through that person. But the, you know, the facility itself is not going to um, issue that kind of information because they feel as though, okay, giving that information you know, somehow allows them to, um, they're losing control, you know, and they feel as though by keeping, you know, tight controls, um, particularly over information, because that's really the only other thing that they have, you know, um, over, over these folks, you've, 
you know, taken away their freedom. You've taken away, you know, their um, everything. I mean, you've taken them out of their communities, out of their families, out of their homes and all of these things. Um, And, you know, letters and phone calls are what you have left, you know, and this patients. Um, so they know this and they manage those things in such a way that, you know, they use them as, um, as a way to punish them. So, you know, you can restrict somebody's visitation, you can do all kinds of other, you know, take other retaliatory action for people who are perceived to be troublemakers. They don't actually, and I want to emphasize this, this, people don't actually have to be organizers like there's no there's no standard there's no set of criteria that says okay these are the things that an organizer does and you know we're going to go according to this list here so it could just be that you know the moons weren't aligned properly and they decided that day okay this person's an organizer and that has a set of implications that basically you know that they're allowed to do all sorts of things to that person based on that designation. And that's what's so deeply problematic about this. That that kind of group punishment mentality, too, also works very strongly against prison organizing on the inside, mm-hmm. uh, because people know that even if they're not involved in the organizing, there's still a price to pay for them should the prison decide uh, to retaliate against, you know, like, for instance, putting a whole unit on lockdown, maybe because they suspect one or two people of being involved in some kind of resistance organizing. Not just that, I mean, but they will, you know, you can get swooped up in something, even if you happen to be sitting next to that person. Totally. For dinner. Um, Absolutely. You happen to, you know, be kind to that person and you gave them one of your soups, you know, when they were short you know, that could be perceived as some kind of collusion. Um, So I think that, you know, this, um, this conversation really uncovered uh, a number of different problems related to uh, this action. And the action, as you pointed out, is still ongoing, in spite of what Florida officials are saying. I just want to, you know, quickly review the demands that prisoners are asking for um, with regards to Operation Push. And, you know, as you articulated at the beginning, you know, said it's a really an end to prison slavery if we want to, you Mm -hmm. know, bring it down to um, something, you know, (laughs) like that. I mean, you put it uh, a little bit differently when um, you talked about, you know, the wages and and things like that, but it's really an end of prison slavery. Um, The, you know, uh, the issue around canteen prices and the price gouging that is happening of not just people on the inside, but also um, of their families around the uh, commissary prices and and telephones uh, as well. And then the third demand was around uh, providing parole incentives for people with dates in the distant future or lifers as um, mm-hmm. we call them. And I think we can, you know, we should come back and, and check in and, and talk about this um, again fairly soon. Um, I think uh, one, just, you know, to uh, stay on top of what's happening, not just with Kevin Rashid Johnson, but as well as, you know, other people who have been, you know, labeled and, and targeted as part of this effort. But I think there's also a component of this that we haven't really 
discussed, and that has to do with the the racial and racialized dimension. Of, Absolutely. Um, which I think comes up not just, you know, um, more clearly perhaps for some people than others when we talk about immigrant detention, but, you know, also the people who are organizing or the people who are labeled organizers inside mm -hmm. um, are not necessarily, let's just talk, leave it there for yep. now. And, and we need to come Definitely. back and, and have that that conversation because I don't think that, you know, we don't have time to get into it today, but I, I definitely want to continue this. And um yeah, I mean it was it for our first, you know, episode back in uh January twenty eighteen. I mean, can you believe we're already at the end of the month? Like what Oh my Lord. I do not <laughs> I do not know. I'm glad the holidays and the New Year's uh, is behind us, uh, and that maybe we can get back into a groove here. But yeah. I can't believe it's almost February already. Look, but the I'll, days are getting longer, so that's I, good. Look, I'll admit, I just took down my Christmas tree today. <laughs> I, I had a goal of taking it down before Easter, so I'm doing good here. Finally, got my right own schedule. Um, <laughs> ahead of schedule as yeah. far as I'm concerned. way ahead of schedule but you know i'm also just trying to catch up on sleep after you know the this uh job that i had last week that you know it's just kicked my ass and um it always takes me like two or three days to to bounce back so you know having a having a chronic pain condition doesn't make things easier yeah. um so yeah, there's a lot of like, okay, I need three days of going to bed at like four or five in the afternoon uh, <laughs> yeah, and then going back to the gym and all of that stuff before I can, you know, really start feeling like myself again. But I am absolutely thrilled that we did this today. Um, yeah, me too. We'll provide links um, and more info uh, for folks uh, along with the episode's description on um, on the website. Um, let's tell people where to find us on Patreon. Yep, you can go to patreon.com slash beyondprisons. Uh, chip in a few dollars if you have it to help us keep the show going, uh, help us keep it regular and expand this project um, as time goes on. Um, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, beyond underscore prison and on facebook uh on itunes you know pretty much all the places you would look uh you can find us i would say and yeah this was fantastic and i i look forward to uh doing not only more episodes uh of the podcast in the coming weeks but uh revisiting this um and sort of various threads mm -hmm. that we've uh touched on and ones that we haven't touched on so um thank you to everybody for listening and it's good to be back with all of you, especially right. you, Kim. Yeah, same here, Brian. I'm like, I'm like, okay, this feels, this feels good now. So <laughs> yeah. I'm like, all right, I'm ready for the rest of the day, even if the rest of the day is just a nice long nap. That um, sounds good. <laughs> all right. Well, y'all enjoy your afternoon.